KYW Original Podcasts. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This week, we take a look at Pennsylvania's new order requiring mandatory face masks. It's our new way of life, so what's the impact on our culture? When we're wearing a mask, we sort of become like these anonymous creatures. Could anonymity lead to more crime and discrimination? As young black men, we've already been dehumanized. We already know what it looks like and feels like. Or will it be an equalizer in the COVID-19 world? Then high-profile celebrities say coronavirus in prisons is a reason to get out. He's not a virus to the community. He's not COVID-19. Spokesman for actor Bill Cosby explains why they are planning to petition the governor for a reprieve. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the new mandatory mask order that goes into effect Sunday. Beginning at 8 p.m. April 11th, all Pennsylvania businesses must require employees and customers to wear a mask or facial covering or they'll be denied entry. The effort is designed to stop the spread of COVID-19 in a state where more than 700 have died of the virus. But as we work to reopen the country, asked will likely be a major part. So what's the impact? With me to discuss this flashpoint is James Font, a civil rights and criminal defense attorney with Greenblatt, Pierce, Font, and Flores. We also have Amy Morin, a psychotherapist who has written about the psychology of masking. And finally, we have Philadelphia City Council member Isaiah Thomas. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. James, I want to start with you. Masking will soon become mandatory. How can a state do this and just change culture in such a short period of time? I think it's important to understand that the masking order is actually done in a larger context, really providing for both worker safety and safety for all the citizens at the same time. Um, so this is really to protect all of us, um, at least that's the idea, in order to effectuate under the guise of public safety um, in this very unusual time. Yeah. Is there any requirement that masks are provided to folks who may not have access? The order does provide that masks, that employers have to provide masks for employees to wear during time of businesses and makes it a requirement for that work site. Now, where they can't actually provide the masks, they can either be approved or made by employees according to the CDC guidelines. So we'll look to the guidelines in order to provide those appropriate masks that will protect themselves. I've gone to what raised concern with me, James, is that I went to stores and they're literally saying no masks, no entry. And for some reason, it just didn't sit right with me. It doesn't sit right with you. Uh, but you have to, again, look at the collective good. Who are they and who is it protecting? It actually is to protect you, Sherry. So you walk into a store um, and you don't have a mask on. You or I may very well be an unwitting carrier of COVID-19. You may feel perfectly fine and you have an antibody within you that maybe protects you. Maybe you don't. You're just not symptomatic. You're an asymptomatic carrier of the disease. Um, It doesn't mean that you are not now walking in and potentially infecting those that are around you. So um, these are unusual times, to be sure. Certain civil liberties are being curtailed, to be sure, hopefully on a temporary basis. And we can talk about a new normal that could set in. 
but this is to protect everybody to ensure that this does not get spread even faster. Amy, I want to go to you because I understand there's some psychology that also makes folks feel better just to have a mask. It does. I mean, initially when the CDC said we probably shouldn't wear a mask, we still saw a lot of people choosing to wear one. Part of that has to do with the illusion of control. We feel better about life. We feel less anxious when we can control something. And one of the things that we could control was, okay, I'm going to attempt to put something on to try to prevent myself from getting the virus and made a lot of people feel a lot better to think, okay, I'm taking some sort of action. There's not a lot of things I can do to to prevent the spread of the virus, but maybe this will help. And even though experts are coming out and saying this probably isn't going to help, it still helps some people's mental health to think at least I'm taking some sort of protective measure um, other than just washing my hands or staying home. If I'm going to be out of the house, this is what I'm going to do. The one thing that raised concern with me was the anonymity that comes with wearing a mask. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it definitely presents a unique situation where we're so used to looking at people's faces so that we see their smile, that we are able to to look at them in a different way. When we're wearing a mask, we sort of become like these anonymous creatures, sort of the same the way that we treat cars on the road. We get road rage when we see another car that cuts us off. People who wouldn't get angry at a human being that cuts in front of them in line sort of feel differently when a car cuts them off when they're on the highway. The same sort of sort of thing can happen when people are walking around wearing masks. We forget that there's human beings that maybe look like your mother, maybe look like your grandfather, and we start to treat people a little bit differently. Isaiah, you're a lawmaker here in Philadelphia, newly elected to city council, and you have raised this idea of masking and some of the disparities that it creates. Could you explain? Sure. So first and foremost, thank you for having me, and I appreciate your uh, phenomenal guests who provide quality information. I think what when you spoke, Sherry, you talked about um, the idea of no mask, no entrance bothering you because you're thinking about the most unfortunate demographic who unfortunately don't have access to a lot of mm. the things that they need. Philadelphia is the poorest big city in the entire country. So long before the coronavirus, uh, everyday Philadelphians were already struggling. So just to add um, another expense that people essentially have to make sure that they provide, not just for themselves, but for everybody in their household, can be somewhat costly. We're also seeing a lot of advertisement for masks. And if you're not familiar with the market and how things things go, uh, poor people can end up paying a significant price for a mask just because someone's offering it at a crazy surcharge. So um, I'm extremely concerned about the guidelines from the governor. We are waiting to get more clarity on exactly uh, what this is going to look like as far as the implementation. But I would love for us on city council to put ourselves in a position where we're providing masks for citizens all across the city of Philadelphia so it doesn't become an expense to families who are in need. You're also an African-American male, and there's been huge discussions over people of color concerned about what wearing a mask will mean for them personally. I think, and and I think um, the um, the sister who spoke right before me who talked about uh, the idea of masks making us um, anonymous creatures, and uh, often it makes it easier for people to dehumanize objects instead of an actual uh, person that you could put a face on. You know, as black, as young black men, we've already been uh, dehumanized. We already know what it looks like and feels like to walk in a space and for people to treat you less than everyone else. And I'm pretty sure other people of color go through the same thing as not black men. But my entire life, you know, we've been programmed and taught to do everything uh, the opposite of what we're asking people to do right now. We're always taught to not wear our hoodies and not cover up our face and try your best to allow those around you to recognize that you're actually not a threat and you are a human. 
so it's it's almost like we're uh, we're multiplying some of the issues that black men have already faced, specifically black men growing up in the city of Philadelphia, because we are already deemed as a threat. And I think, in my opinion, this just multiplies that for me. I struggle personally to wear a mask. And I choose to mask, just to be clear. I choose to mask. I've chosen to mask from the very beginning. I thought it made sense. And, you know, I had been sick for a while, didn't have, I didn't know what I had. So I just masked up and I just kept doing it. Um, But James, you said the purpose of the masking is to protect workers and the public. We recently saw a video of a man trying to get on a SEPTA bus. He didn't have a mask on, even though it was mandatory. He got pulled off by police. Are there limits? Are there limits to what can be required of the general public here? Again, I I go back to this is not a masking policy. It is a policy that's been put in place that's much more widespread with regards to the safety protocols. Using the mask is it's the word that I think engenders the same kinds of feelings that Isaiah is talking about. Mm. And so I think it, it dredges up all of those feelings. I have a different perspective on it. Yes, there are limits. Right now, although we talk about this as a mandatory masking policy, this is still, by and large, still voluntary, right? So no one is is coming and putting handcuffs on you if you don't put on a mask. Um, You're simply being told you can't get on that bus. You're being told you can't go into that store. Those are choices that you make. Um, I think that there is, and I'm going to go to the psychologist, Amy, on on this one. Um, I think that, you know, you actually may have an opportunity here um, where, and I'm not African-American, so I don't have that experience. But here is, a, here is an opportunity where we are all now being ubiquitous. We are all wearing these masks. We are all now sort of anonymous. And it may, in a crazy way, um, and Isaiah, I, I want to talk to you about this specifically. Does this, in some ways, unstigmatize that? Does it provide the ability to say we are all going through this together in, towards the common good? Because that's what this policy, I think, does. Um, it is we are all doing our 320 millionth part to try and prevent the spread, to keep our collectively health together so that we can ultimately reopen an economy. Does it level the playing field in a way? Because uh, just like, you know, you go to school and they say uniforms level the playing field because the types of clothes you wear don't um, matter when you come to school because everybody has the same thing on. Do the mass, having everybody wear them, level the playing field in some way, Amy? You know, I think in an interesting way, uh, it can. I think some people feel like, all right, if we're all wearing a mask, then things are a little bit different. But something we're seeing in South Florida where masks are already uh, mandatory to go into most essential businesses is we're seeing a lot of people who say, well, if that's the herd mentality, I'm going to go against the grain. No matter what, they just don't want to go along with sort of the rules. So then we have a lot of people defying it sort of as a way to say, I'm not going to be a sheep who's going to be herded and follow the rules. So it's interesting to see how people are are responding to this. And now that we're saying you can't go into supermarkets, you can't go into uh, on public transportation unless you're wearing a mask, some people are really digging in their heels about doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And and Isaiah, I wonder if you say, do you have to be careful about the type of mask? Because uh, I've seen people say, I'm going to go with lighter colors, not darker colors so that it, you know, and and this is a thing with men across the board, because women or other people, children even could be a little nervous (laughs) if you walk in with the wrong mask on. I ironically was a teacher before all this. So I did not I, I, I never thought that uniforms leveled the playing field. And I don't think masks will either. When we look at uh, people's subconscious and how they view men of color, 
uh, thinking about myself specifically, I'm the youngest member of city council. And fortunately, as well as unfortunately, often I fit the description. So the zip code I live in is the 19126. My staff and I are thinking about different outreach that we can do in the neighborhood to be able to inform people that my zip code specifically is the hottest zip code in the city of Philadelphia. Think about me walking up to your door, knocking on your door with my face completely covered with another, say, African-American staff member with their face also completely covered. And then think about some of my white colleague counterparts if they knocked on the door with your face completely covered. So those thoughts that just went through our mind right there, that speaks to the stigma of what it means to be an African-American male who is asked to essentially cover themselves up when right now in the city of Philadelphia, um, we're viewed as a big part of the problem and a lot of people fear us. Yeah. And I just want to point out, and James, I'm going to come back to you, because sure. we've seen people misusing the mask. OK. And already across the country, there have been um, a string of crimes where people are literally wearing medical masks and medical gloves to rob people. Uh, and, and I mean, that is something because in a lot of states, masks were illegal for this very reason and other reasons. And now we are making this medical exception. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, it's really interesting. So in Virginia, for example, um, it is illegal to wear a mask, um, except in unusual circumstances. And the reason that it was illegal to wear a mask in Virginia was in response to the Ku Klux Klan. Um, so, it's, so, so you have a, a law uh, that was established ostensibly to, uh, count, you know, to, to fight racism uh, that has now been suspended due to the public health emergency. So now people are being encouraged to wear masks. Um, I actually just watched a video the other day of the governor of Maryland, uh, who I think a Republican who actually I think is doing a really great job, who during their press conferences, unlike um, the individual in the White House, is actually wearing a mask during the press conferences, except when they're getting to the podium and actually speaking, because they're trying to lead by example. I think, Isaiah, to your point, which is to show that we are all in this together to try and un- to destigmatize that very issue that you're talking about. Because when you wear a mask, one of two things happens. You're either stigmatizing someone because you think that they are ill and they're sick or that it goes to the racial implications that precisely the things that you're talking about. Where in Asian cultures um, where they've already gone through SARS and, and things you know, that we have not experienced, they wear masks as a sign of patriotism because they are, in fact, trying to fight the spread of the contagion. And when they see our reactions to it and how slow we are to mask ourselves and to protect collectively one another, they're horrified that we have not yet come to that very conclusion. So I think we have to be sensitive to those experiences, but we have to be more sensitive right now to the short-term dangers that we face. The numbers are stark. 2.1 million infections in the world, 650,000 infections in this country, and 31,000 deaths in New York City in one month. Masking will assist that you know, flattening of that curve. And I think we have to come to those realities. Yeah. And so, Amy, how do we switch our mindset? Because, you know, standing in a line with everybody masked up, I did that a few days ago. It felt like the twilight zone for us. How do you shift your mindset? I think it's going to take time and exposure. As we do it more, I think it'll get more, we'll start to get more used to it. Down here in South Florida, we've been doing it for probably a week and a half or so. And it's already starting to become more uh, more normal down here. So I think it just takes a little bit of time. It's something that we're, it's really foreign to us as of right now. But the more that we go out into public wearing a mask, the more that we keep seeing other people wearing masks, 
we'll just get more used to it as time goes. Should people be careful about the mask that they choose, the color, the fabric? Because all of that adds to, you know, you don't really think about it, but it adds just like clothing, just like hairstyles, just like, you know, whether you smile or don't, how people will react to you because that's the first thing they'll see. It is. And I think it is really important. And as of right now, that's one way to sort of um, show off your personality. Choose a fun mask, choose a plain mask. We've seen people in the healthcare industry, doctors who are putting their name tag with a big smile on it right underneath themselves because they want their patients to see I'm still friendly. I'm not scary. Or we're seeing people who are putting smiles on the outside of their mask just to say, you know, I'm a human being. It's okay. You can still smile at me. I'm not this, you know, faceless, nameless being, but I'm a human too. And so I think it's one way to sort of say, how do I use this mask in a way that I still want to express myself? And it's a way for, for people to, um, you know, even though we have to do this, it, it can be something that we do to say, here's something about my personality, whether you pick a tie-dye one or you pick one with penguins on it, or you just pick a solid color, whatever it is that you want to say about yourself, maybe we can use it as an opportunity to express ourselves. Yeah. And uh, that's the American way. We find all kinds of way to express ourselves. And so, Isaiah, will will folks have to have another talk before, you know, and say, look, you need to choose, you know, this type of mask or maybe to to, to just make sure that uh, the disparities don't continue. And and, to, and I mean, part of it is you also feeling comfortable and not feeling like you'll be treated differently because you're masked up. Yeah, I think you raised some great points um, as it relates to what we do moving forward. I know from a city council perspective, we are going to try to have um, as much outreach as possible as it relates Mm. to spending some city dollars on marketing and communication and making sure people understand not just the seriousness of staying at home, but the seriousness of washing their hands and wearing a mask when they go out. And on our social media campaign, uh, social media platforms, I apologize, communicating to people uh, what type of masks are out there, how much they cost, and what's an effective mask and what's not. But I agree with James and Amy. Um, the short term that James talked about is the most important part. And, it, it, and the fact that, you know, I did raise a lot of issues as it relates to um, the, the racial differences as to how people perceive wearing a mask. But even me, who's not the most pro-mask person in the world, I'm still wearing a mask because it's what's safe for me. It's what's safe for my family. And it's what's safe for most of Philadelphia. Yeah. But I do think talking about this issue helps because people might it might not be top of mind, you know, for 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 everybody. But I think it could explain why people act certain kind of ways. I saw people in a line at a grocery store. They were, ner- you know, the, the guy was a bigger guy, uh, African-American man. He just you could tell he was kind of nervous and didn't really want to wear it because he's a big guy. He didn't want people to be afraid of him, you know. And I think that just alerting people that this is a thing, um, it, it makes it all of our interactions, I think, a little easier. Would you not agree? I agree 100 percent. I think dialogue like this, I think average everyday conversation between uh, constituents all across the city, whether it's on social media, um, on live, Zooms, however it may happen, because I think what Amy talked about matters a lot. You know, this is new now, but over time it will become hopefully part of the new norm for people to essentially travel and operate throughout the course of the short term, not just in Philadelphia, but across the country. And in order for us all to be comfortable with this, we need platforms like this where we can communicate our concerns, talk about it from the perspective that we come from, and then find some type of happy medium as citizens as to how we all can work together and function in this new society post-coronavirus. I know, post-COVID society, right? And so, James, I mean... (laughs) 
<laughs> we are giving up a lot of rights, though, James. We really are in this battle against the coronavirus. This is one of them, right? And so how yeah, much so- flexibility uh, does the government have in limiting our individual rights as we, you know, gear up to reopen the country? Yeah, two things. One is I want to say that I'm a very reluctant mask wearer. So so I want to say that I was converted by my mother-in-law who knitted me one that it has eagles insignias all over it. But to answer your your question, Jerry, I think that it is interesting about the kinds of rights that that we may or may not be giving up. Um, My concern about the tension between um, civil rights and the public health emergency that uh, is being um, that is being waged here um, is that liberals and both conservatives, I think, both worry about protecting civil liberties. They just differ on which ones are most mm-hmm. worth defending. Uh, liberals you know, tend to want, and of which I am one, I will wear my, this on my sleeve, you know, liberals tend to want to protect things like you know, abortion rights or prison and detainee rights or voting rights, um, where you see conservatives are more concerned with religious freedoms or property rights or Second Amendment rights. And now here we are all coming together, worrying about whether or not is this going to be the new normal. But what we have here um, is something that appears to be temporary. Emergencies um, are the exceptions to the rule of law and really depends on how long those emergencies um, and how long that that that, that continues to exist before those exceptions become the new normal. That's my concern. Do we all get too used to this being the new normal where we cede our civil liberties for those issues that we all care about, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. Um, One thing to keep in mind, though, is that these are all still, by and large, voluntary, although mandatory, voluntary issues. The government is not following you as far as I know. They are not listening to your phone calls. They are not GPS tracking you. The guidelines that are in place and the, the sort of the mechanisms by which the enforcements are being put in place are on employers. Yeah. Employers do not follow these restrictions. They can lose their licenses. They can be fined. That is where the government has the power right now. They do are not, as far as I know, following Isaiah or Amy or I or you to ensure that you are following and doing what you should do as a matter as a matter of civic duty. And quick follow up to you. I mean, there are some states uh, and some counties in in California who are considering bills that would fine people a thousand dollars for not wearing the mask. When you start throwing out serious fines like that, does it change your analysis? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a concern. Sure. How, how they're going to, I, I don't think they're going to be putting people in jail, right? Where there's a big effort of which, um, yeah. I, you know, part of the criminal, criminal justice section of the Philadelphia Bar Association, of which I've got a number of my fellow folk who are part of are, are working hard to get people out of jail. They're not going to be putting people in jail for it, but will they be fining people? Will they be threatening the fines? Yeah, that's a concern. But we do that all the time. We find people for not putting out their trash. We find people for not following the traffic laws. We find people for all kinds of things for not following basic rules of civic society. Um, it's not above, uh, it's yeah. not beyond the bounds of, re- of reasonableness to say if you don't wear a mask to protect people from 30,000 deaths in New York City in a month, that that's unreasonable. And so, Amy, so i got to mention something that, has happened in some Asian cultures. People have become addicted to masks and they have a condition called mask dependency where they use the mask to cover up anxiety and to deal with social awkwardness. Is this us in the future? You know, it could be. I think uh, just about anything Americans can get addicted to. We know this from smartphones to substances or just about anything that we 
start doing. And so I think for some people, I think they'll feel more comfortable going out in public with a mask on for that reason, that it helps them with their anxiety when they feel like they aren't as likely to be seen. And so for people that already have some level of anxiety when they go out in public, I think it could, this could help them to feel better and then they'll want to keep it up even if we don't have to wear masks anymore. Yeah, we'll spend a lot less money on makeup, that's for sure. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, can't put lipstick on when you got a mask on. It's just like, what's the point, right? Right, Um, mascara sales will go up and lipstick sales will go down. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, Isaiah, as we uh, gear up to wrap up, how how do we get more lawmakers like yourself to think about the bigger picture and make sure that the types of discussions we're having here where we think about all segments of our society, that that is included when we make all these rules uh, to to keep us safe in this new COVID world? Well it's, well, it's up to us to make sure that we continue to have conversations like this. And it's up to constituents all across the city of Philadelphia to let the people uh, that represent them know exactly how they feel about not just this issue, but a number of different issues that relates to their everyday life. Outside of that, what we're seeing right now is we're seeing truly the power of the executive branch of government. And I'm not talking about what 45 said when he said he had total power, but I'm talking about when you look at the decisions that the mayor has made, you look at the decisions that the governor has made, those decisions for the most part have been executive orders. They haven't consulted with members of council. They haven't talked to uh, the state house or other legislators. They've been able to make decisions Mm. based on what they feel like is in the best interest of people pretty much on their own. And while I do agree with most of these decisions that the governor as well as the mayor have made, what it does show me is the, the importance and the power of our vote. And I think Philadelphians and people all across the country recognize that elected officials truly matter, especially when you're looking at uh, situations like we're facing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Because we've seen the rise of the governor and the rise of the mayor uh, and municipal leaders, uh, in a, you know, as as we battle uh, this crisis. And so because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. Masks are quickly becoming a part of our daily lives, as is social distancing. Is there a silver lining to this COVID-19 world? And uh, we'll start with you, James, and we'll end with you, Isaiah. So what do you think? Is there a silver lining here? I think the silver lining here is that in akin to 9-11, Um, There is a sense out there that um, as a community, uh, we are all trying to do our one 320 million that we can uh, to look out for one another. So uh, when the trash collectors come along, man, I'm cheering them on. Uh, When I'm standing at the grocery store, I'm asking how how much the person at the checkout line is doing, because really they are some of the heroes and they need to be recognized. The people that cannot work from home and need to be out there working um, and don't have the security uh, for, for that social distancing mm-hmm. need to be recognized. And I see that, and I'm making a point to try and do it, and I think that is bringing us in some strange way together, and I hope it continues after this crisis abates. Yeah, Amy, silver lining. Yeah, similarly, I think uh, a lot of people are starting to evaluate their priorities to see if their priorities in life have really been in line with their values. And I'm seeing a lot of people making some big shifts right now and saying, you know, I haven't been living the way that I want to live life. And what do I want to do differently? And I think out of this will come some big changes for a lot of people. Yeah. Final word, Isaiah. I think we're seeing so many heroes all across the city and all across the country. These are people who are working in supermarkets. These are uh, nurses and doctors and practitioners and bus drivers and, 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 and trash truck workers. Um, they've been stepping up 
not just here in Philadelphia, but all across the country. We're also seeing a ton of people donate their money, their time, their resources to help people in need. And most importantly, the use of technology has expanded uh, rapidly in a way that none of us thought that it would be forced down our throat. And I think that the silver lining, the best silver lining out of all of this, I believe, will be the innovation that will come from what public education looks like, not just here in the city of Philadelphia, but all across the country. Oh, yes. Lots of innovation happening, new ideas. So I want to say thank you so much to James Funt, to Amy Morin, and the city council member Isaiah Thomas for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, he claims his client is vulnerable amid a COVID-19 outbreak in a Pennsylvania prison. We are now going to file a petition to the governor asking him to give Mr. Cosby a compassionate release. A spokesman for actor Bill Cosby speaks out. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family. Thank you so much for taking a listen. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and then rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Thanks, everybody. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week is actor Bill Cosby. He's doing time for sexual assault at a prison where 22 inmates have tested positive for COVID-19. But he'll soon join the list of high-profile defendants, including singer R. Kelly and former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, who petitioned the court for a reprieve, claiming the virus is a threat to their lives. But are they vulnerable, or do they want coronavirus to be a get-out-of-jail-free card? Bill Cosby spokesman Andrew Wyatt is here. Welcome to Flashpoint. You all are going to be filing a petition in the coming days. Why? We thought that Mr. Cosby was going to meet the criteria of the of Governor Wolf's executive order. We were ecstatic to see the governor put an executive order in place to Secretary of Prisons of Pennsylvania, John Whitzel, saying that any elderly inmate with underlying health conditions would be a part of the executive order and release and remanded to house arrest. So we felt really good that Mr. Cosby was going to be in those numbers. So we, you know, yesterday I decided to send out a, a release you know, just thanking the governor, not just for Mr. Cosby's, on Mr. Cosby's behalf, but all elderly inmates who deserve the opportunity to be released and remanded to house arrest. As you know, and most people in, in, in Pennsylvania, Mr. Cosby was given a 3 to 10 sentence. He wasn't given a life sentence or a death sentence. You know, when they said that they were not going to release him and he didn't meet the criteria of the governor's executive order, we felt that they were trying to execute Mr. Cosby by making sure he gets this virus, COVID-19, Right now, this virus has severely affected SCI Phoenix Prison, where he's located. A total of 18 uh, people have been infected. One inmate died uh, last week at this prison. A total of three officers died in the same week from COVID-19 from SCI Phoenix uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we feel that Mr. Cosby's life is in danger. He doesn't have the luxury of social distancing because he's blind. He has to rely on the aid of inmates uh, who are CPS workers, uh, rely on the aid of officers to get him from point A to point B. Uh, He has to rely on people to touch his food. Uh, He can't get his tray uh, and, and, and walk to a table and eat. Uh, he has to get someone to help him uh, in just about every area. Of course, they have given him three masks to wear and gloves when he makes a call to me or Mrs. Cosby uh, using the phone, and he has to keep his mask on at all times. But then he has to go and take those three masks and uh, wash them every night out in a sink inside his prison cell. That's not healthy. That's not safe. 
And so we're uh, we're now going to file a petition to the governor asking him to give Mr. Cosby a compassionate release. Uh, because, look, he deserves to be safe. Statistics and medical researchers and scientists have shown that uh, this, this, this virus is killing more blacks than any other race. And Mr. Cosby, being 82 years old, he's elderly, is killing elderly people. Look, this virus wiped out 30-some people in a, in a nursing home in Virginia. So it, it does distinguish between color. We're seeing more elderly people being affected. It does distinguish between age. We're working on a petition to get to the governor ASAP. And what about the people who say, I mean, this, this uh, reprieve, typically focusing on people who are within one year of their minimum sentence. I mean, he clearly does not fall within that category. Are you saying there's no accommodation that can be made in the prison to ensure his safety? There's zero accommodation, but let's be clear. Mr. Cosby was given a 3 to 10 year sentence, and he's eligible for parole in three years. He's been in prison now for a year and possibly eight months. He has a little less than 18 months left before he goes up for parole. Uh, so he, he does he does meet the criteria, you know, less than 18 months before he's up for parole. You know, let let this this human being be, you know, released and remanded to house arrest. Let's get through this this plague that has affected not the just the United States, but the world. This is a world plague, and let's let's get past that. And, and then if 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 once we get past everything. You know, the parole board will have to review what he has been doing. He will have a parole office that will come and visit him every week, if not twice a week. Mr. Cosby is not foreign to this process. Before he was sentenced, he was remanded to house arrest. He had an ankle bracelet on. His parole officer that was assigned to him visited him once a week, sometimes twice a week, uh, just to check on him. They searched the house. They went through the house. He, he never left the confines of his home. He possibly went out a few times on his back porch to get some sunlight. He never left to go to the grocery store. He never left to go to a doctor's appointment. Look, he cannot move around without the aid of others. He is, he's totally blind. He can't see a figure. He can't see you. He can't see me. He has to rely on the aid of others. So he's not a menace to society. He will not be a menace to the women in the community of children. Mr. Cosby has a, had an upstanding career for 82 years as a model American citizen. He has had an upstanding career, unfortunately, in this prison. He's been a model citizen at SCI Phoenix through the Man Up program, uh, educating others, speaking with others, you know, helping them to become better fathers, better, better men. He's not a menace to society. This this guy has never been charged of anything. He's never had a criminal conviction. You know, this is all new. Why not remand him to house arrest? But people have said, I mean, this is uh, this is not a victimless crime here. Uh, there are victims. Um, he was convicted in this case, and he he hasn't done the minimum yet. These are allegations that came about with no evidence, no proof. Anybody was at that trial. Uh, Mr. Cosby, every woman that took the stand who was a 404B witness, those women never showed any proof that they were raped. They said, I thought I was. 
I thought I was drugged. Janice Dixon got on the witness stand. He said, "You wrote in a book in your in your in your memoirs in 1982 that Bill Cosby you knocked on his room door to have sex with him and he blew you off uh, in Lake Tahoe." She said, "Yeah, I said that, but that was poetic licensing." Janice Baker Kenny, one of the women, she said, "Well, I think I was raped, but I was a drug addict. I did drugs, and me and my girlfriend we seeked out." Big black men, we like to sleep with them. I slept with Bill Cosby. I don't think he drugged me because I used to do LSD and all kinds of drugs. Janice Dickinson stated when he blew me off, I went uh, back to my room, popped two Quaaludes, and drank a bottle of wine and went to sleep. It's in her book, but she called it poetic licensing. Uh, No evidence was brought forward. They were just mere allegations. She said it happened, so it must have been true. You know, people want to talk about the sheer volume of women, 60 women. Go back and look at those women accounts, what they, what they stated in the New York Magazine. Only 14 to 15 of the women said that I think he raped me or he raped me. Some said, well, he bumped up against my breast uh, in the 60s. He touched my butt in the 70s. You know, I, I would say, you know, we could retry this case. Yeah, I, I don't want to retry the case. Right. Is, is this a situation? I mean, we hear R. Kelly trying to use the coronavirus crisis to get out. Is this a situation where Mr. Cosby is simply trying to use the coronavirus crisis as a way to not serve the time that he's supposed to serve? Look, Mr. Cosby had, you know, he had uh, come to grips with serving the time. Uh, of course, uh, while he was serving the time, if you remember on January 7th, uh, we filed a petition with United States, Pennsylvania United States Supreme Court. If you remember April of last year, we had a, a actual oral arguments between the Superior Court uh, of Pennsylvania trying to get him released. So he has uh, come to grips with his new reality, uh, and he's serving the time, and he has been a model citizen uh, on, on the inside, contributing to the Man Up program. And, and aiding and helping young men be better better individuals uh, so when they get out, they could be better fathers, better community leaders. He's not asking for a handout. He has never asked for a handout. But we understand that prisons, through the medical experts, scientists, even through from, from federal prosecutors, and look at uh, the prosecutor of Philadelphia who has said that these prisons are breeding grounds and uh, the governor needs to put forth an executive order to let elderly, nonviolent inmates out, elderly people especially, because they're not going to survive this virus if they should get it. And God forbid Mr. Cosby to get it. You know, what we're seeing is that the actions of, of Pennsylvania and the governor is politically motivated, personally motivated, and racially motivated against Mr. Cosby. And I've been saying that from, from the beginning. You bring charges with no evidence and no proof. Just he, that he said, she said, but more she said it happened. And so it's true. But he's not asking for a handout. He's saying, we're saying let him be released and remanded to house arrest. He's not a virus to the community. He's not COVID-19. This reprieve under the governor's order, and I talked to DOC secretary earlier this week, he says if you were to get out, it's a temporary reprieve, and that you would have to go back and serve the remainder of your minimum or the remainder of your time, are you saying that he would be willing to go back? Yes, he would. Right now, this is about saving lives. This is about human lives. Nobody should be put in a position 
to be infected by this virus. If that was the case, you wouldn't have the social distancing rule. You wouldn't have had. You wouldn't have shut down the government. You wouldn't have shut down all of these states, these businesses, if you didn't feel that way. Many people are going to have to go back to work. A lot of people are off work. Children are going to have to go back to school. And now you find children are beginning to miss school because, opposed to having road rage on the on the highway, people are having house rage now because uh, people are confined into small spaces. So Mr. Cosby would be be willing to go back. You know, we're saying give him a chance to survive because we know if he should get it at his age that it's not going to be well for him. At his age, he doesn't have any major health issues, but he does suffer from time to time his blood pressure going up and down. At his age, you know, the chances of him surviving it will be slim to none. When is this petition going to be filed? Uh, we are working on it now. Our attorneys are pr- aggressively working on it, and the goal is to have something filed within a week or two. You know, you're going to get a lot of a lot of pushback on this. I wouldn't be doing what I do for for a living. Uh, I have a public relations crisis management firm for a reason. Look, I've I've been getting calls from R. Kelly's people, you know, asking for guidance and trying to find ways to get him out and. And my thoughts on it, as I told them, I said, look, he should be remanded to house arrest. The guy has not had a trial. And now the facility that he's located in, uh, it has been infected with the virus. Uh, if you could let Michael Avernati out, you let uh, Michael Cohen out, you've you released all of these people from federal prison, and they were actually sentenced. And this man has not been sentenced. It, it just makes me believe that these releases are based on color. And, and it's, it's unfortunate because this, this virus is, is killing everybody. We're all on the same level now when it comes to this virus. The wealthy can't run to higher ground. We're all fighting it together. We're all getting uh, getting through this together. I just hope that people are not letting their personal beliefs or political beliefs and racial views sway them when it comes to saving human lives, especially black lives in these prisons across this country. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew Wyatt, for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. And you be safe and thank you for giving me the opportunity. Next up, since he can't spend records, he's delivering food. And I bought lunch the one time and I was like, maybe I can do something with this. A South Jersey DJ's effort to help healthcare workers during the COVID-19 crisis. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community and one man from South Jersey. He goes from bringing the life to the party to bringing meals for healthcare professionals dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. He's feeding the front lines. And here to tell us more about his effort is our Patriot Home Care changemaker, Ryan O'Connell, a.k.a. DJ Rhino. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you guys so much for having me. So you were a DJ. That, that, was, that was your job before. Yeah. Um, yeah, all throughout South Jersey, Philadelphia, and Atlantic City. And so when the crisis hit and the lockdown hit, you shifted gears. Tell me what you decided to do. Yeah, so I have a lot of family and friends in the healthcare uh, industry, a couple of nurses and stuff like that. And I was talking to my one good friend about how she was saying it's so hard to just sit down, you know, and have a hot meal. And I was always taught when I was younger, you know, if somebody does something really nice for you, refers you, anything like that, like, 
should just do kind gestures, just buy him lunch. So I said, ah, you know what, I can help with that. Um, and I bought lunch the one time, and I was like, hmm, maybe I can do something with this. Um, I set up the GoFundMe, and it kind of just took off. Yeah, and so it's called Feeding the Front Lines, and it kind of spread from there. Yep. So tell me what you've done in the, in the weeks since the lockdown happened. So uh, we did over 10000 10000 was our goal, and um, we $10, did like thirty five. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. We did like uh thirty five, forty deliveries to all different hospitals. Um and what what's nice is it, it doesn't just help the nurses and doctors, it also stimulates small businesses in the area, which was big for me. Um so I don't really go to any like big name stores or anything like that, restaurants. Uh it's more so the small local uh neighborhood places around the hospitals. Yeah. So you just choose a, a hospital and then tell me how the process works. So basically every $200 we get, um, I call a local spot near the hospitals. I usually, I I try to find nurses or doctors um, and ask them, you know, what's a good spot around you guys that you guys like. And then every $200 we raise, I will uh, give them a call and I'll just say, hey, listen, I have $200 to spend. Um, If you guys could just put together whatever you you can for me, um, that would be great. And usually they all pretty much go above and beyond and, and really hook the order up. So that's cool as well. Yeah, and then you just have it delivered to the folks, or do you deliver it yourself? So I started doing the deliveries in the beginning, um, and then it got a little bit bigger, and I had a couple friends help me out. And then what I found was the best way to do it was to kind of find somebody on the inside, like a nurse or something, and try and set it up to where it's near their area where they can just kind of pick it up on their way in, or I have the restaurant directly deliver it. This way, it's less hands that touches it, and um overall like security is obviously pretty tight so um it was it just seemed to be the easiest way to do it yeah and what has been the reaction um it's been awesome uh we got some we got some good coverage on it um and it's just cool that you guys reached out as well like i said um donations are starting to slow up and i would love to keep it going yeah i mean what has been the reaction from those on the front lines oh they love it um they all send me pictures and tag me in their stories and all which is really cool and that's kind of all I ask them when I do send it to them because I do want people to see, you know, their money's going out as fast as it's coming in and uh, it's actually getting out there. Yeah. And how does it make you feel to, I mean, you're, you're usually spending records, you know what I mean? And, and, and doing all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And now, I mean, it's, yeah. And now it, you're out here, you know, helping folks and making, making sure they're nourished and are strong enough to, to help others. I mean, yeah, it feels good. And, and that was the other thing. I have all this idle time on my hands. I mean, I'm one of them people I can't sit still. So it gave me something to do um, while obviously benefiting a ton of people as well. So it was great. I also used to have a small business, so I know how tough their times could be right now. So I wanted to make sure that I got them taken care of as well. Yeah. And so you raised, you said, more than $10,000 so far. Yeah, we're at about 10200 right now. Wow. Were you surprised at the outpouring of support? Uh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um, and being a DJ, I have a little bit of a platform, um, a little bit of a following. So it was just a, it was just a way to use it. Um, and, that, you know, that was great. Yeah. And so um, do you how long do you hope to keep this going? I'm, I'm willing to keep it going as long as the donations keep coming in. Like I said, it's getting tough because a lot of friends of friends have seen it and all that kind of stuff. So. I mean, as long as I can keep going, um, I will. I mean, it, it doesn't take much from my end, but I also understand a lot of people are in some tough spots right now as well. Yeah. And so um, how can people get in contact with you? 
Um, basically, on my Instagram, you can give me a follow or Facebook on Instagram. It's DJRYNO underscore. Um, and they can just send me a direct message or Facebook. Uh, it's my name, Ryan O'Connell, O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L. So use the hashtag Feed the Front Lines. And, you know, it, it's it's something. I mean, the word feed, you're feeding them goodness. You're feeding them some um, some kindness and food. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to add about this? Um, you know, what does your family say uh, now that you've picked up this this kind of mantle? Uh, it's really cool. I mean, my sister's a nurse. My dad's a firefighter. So um, they think it's pretty awesome. One of my first deliveries was to my sister's hospital, and they were all super appreciative. So it was great. Yeah, and we're going to keep this going. And so, uh, DJ Rhino, check him out on Instagram. You can find him and all his GoFundMe information at DJ Rhino. That's R-Y-N-O underscore on IG. Uh, so thanks so much. Hashtag Feed the Frontlines. Check out all the photos of the many appreciative uh, folks on the front lines helping with COVID-19. Thank you so much, Ryan. No, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know... Your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. Flashpoint is produced by Cherry Gregg and associate producer Ariane Fulcher. Thanks for listening. it for the flashpoint podcast i hope you enjoyed this exclusive content follow us on twitter our handle is flashpoint show you can also follow me at jerry greg if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar let us know and we'll walk you through the flames as irish poet and playwright oscar wilde once said man is least himself when he talks in his own person give him a mask and he'll tell you the truth i'm your host cherry greg until next week thanks for listening